All right, let's go into your next case. So the next lady is lovely and will pull on your heartstrings. She's 50. At the age of 44, she was diagnosed with a T1N1 M0 neoplasm of her breast, two out of 13 positive nodes. She opted to undergo bilateral mastectomies. The tumor was ER positive, PR was borderline at 15, and her tumor was zero. She was treated with ACT, followed by tamoxifen, which she received as a randomization on the soft trial. In November of 2008, she presented with fairly explosive bony disease, a lot of pain requiring hospitalization. Uh, biopsy was significant for the fact that the fish was positive at 2.9. She was treated with ovarian ablation, anastrozole, and a bisphosphonate from November of 2008 to September of 2009 with good symptomatic improvement also. She subsequently received an LHRH antagonist with fovestrin, and that was until May of 2010 when she had disease progression and now liver metastasis. She received TDM1 as part of a study, and that was for four months, from May of 2010 to September of 2010, when she had disease progression. At that time, she received vinorelbine and trastuzumab for approximately three months, most recently, since February of this year, she's been receiving paclitaxel, carboplatinum, and trastuzumab. And as of this week, we just got some tumor markers back, which show elevation. She is planning on a vacation. We treated her with the plan of repeating her scans after she returns from vacation. So you're thinking maybe she's having progression? I think so. What are you thinking about for the next move? Well, I'm thinking about two things. We talked about lipatinib in combination with capecitabine, and we also talked about the availability of anything on study, such as neratinib. So, Harold, what were your thoughts about this situation? Well, first of all, you need to picture this woman. This is a beautiful woman dressed as though she walked out of a Lily Pulitzer catalog and physically fit in a way that just was like the picture of health. Uh, I mean, extraordinary. And it sounds like even though her tumor is HER2 positive, her disease is not so responsive to anti-HER2 therapy. She's had TDM1 as part of a clinical study. It's obviously a very exciting drug. It's a conjugate between trastuzumab and the old chemotherapy moiety called metanzanoid. They've chemically linked the metanzanoid to the trastuzumab, so it sort of delivers the chemotherapy right to the tumor. And there have been nice responses reported in heavily pretreated cancer patients, and the registrational studies are ongoing. She was on that for a while, then progressed. Now she's had vinorelbine and trastuzumab, and now paclitaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab likely progressing again. So I would continue the anti-HER2 therapy and probably try a different flavor of chemotherapy. The choices here would be capecitabine and lapatinib or capecitabine and trastuzumab outside of a clinical trial. One could also consider gemcitabine and trastuzumab, though there aren't a lot of data for that. Ixabepilone, again, could be used. And I think a clinical trial built around one of the dual kinase inhibitors, or Rich had mentioned another anti-HER2 drug called pertuzumab, which is an antibody that targets the HER2 and HER3 proteins, all would be perfectly reasonable should she be progressing. Now, Rich mentioned neratinib, which you've reported on. What's the difference between that, lapatinib, and the BIBW compound? 
So all three of these are so-called dual kinase inhibitors that target both the EGFR and the HER2 signaling tyrosine kinases. They share many side effects, including lower GI toxicity and the possibility of an acniform-type rash. Lapatinib is obviously FDA-approved for use with capecitabine and also approved for use with endocrine therapy and ER-positive, HER2-positive breast cancer. These other drugs are winding their way through phase two and phase three studies. We don't know which would be the optimal ones. In the neratinib phase two study that we reported in the JCO a year or two ago, we saw nice responses, about a 25% response rate in heavily pretreated patients and close to a 50% response rate in first-line therapy. But we don't know how that would compare to the other dual kinase inhibitors. So I'm not sure if I heard among your thoughts for possible options, Rich, lapatinib and trastuzumab. Is that something you use? Is that something you might think about? Yeah, I have used it in the past. I typically have used it in patients who I wanted to avoid giving it with chemotherapy. I think that's Joyce O'Shaughnessy's data, and I have used that in some situations in the past. How about her? I think that, you know, as long as her performance status remains as good as it is, and except for the fact that she has alopecia, she certainly doesn't look like a patient. It's really remarkable. She's beautiful. It certainly would be something I would consider at some point. How? It's a perfectly reasonable option, though, you know, she's different in some respects from the patients who went under that study. That was a study that looked at lapatinib alone or lapatinib plus trastuzumab and showed a survival benefit for continuing the trastuzumab. It doesn't really answer the question as to whether that's a regimen in and of itself that's worth using. I tend to use it as a maintenance regimen. So if I've got a patient who's responded really nicely to chemotherapy with one of the anti-HER2 drugs and I want to peel off the chemo, this is a regimen I might look at. So the thing you need to know about this woman in the clinic that you can't get a flavor of from her narrative is that she brought with her a three by five note card, totally filled with writing. And I thought she was going to ask about this clinical trial or that clinical trial or all these things because she's been on clinical studies before. But it was a list of all the different alternative therapies that she pursues. And they ranged from Reiki and acupuncture to various diets to medicinal supplements and sort of Eastern meditation. And this woman, who's a very intelligent woman, has found, I think, real solace and spiritual comfort and physical comfort in pursuing a number of these. And she wanted to know if there were data for them and what we thought of them. But she also made a really interesting point, which was that when she talks about these with her family, she and her family view pursuing these alternative therapies as trying to fight the cancer in a way that getting the chemo is like sort of taken for granted. But if you don't pursue these other things, you're not trying to beat the cancer. And that was a really fascinating commentary, I thought. And she wanted to know, as much as she wanted to know about, you know, exciting new drugs and clinical trials, she wanted to know why there wasn't more work being done to explore these alternative therapies to know who they might work in and how best to approach them. And we know that probably the vast majority of our patients with advanced breast cancer are pursuing a variety of strategies. And, you know, it was just interesting to see just how much an integral part of her day-to-day life these were. Had you known all of the stuff she was engaged in? As we talked about. And I have a very simple approach to it, which is similar to what Hal said to her, you know, and that is that if it's not interfering with what we're doing, and it's not harmful, and it's also not costing her a fortune. I tend to support it because I think some of the patients need to feel like they're part of it. I think where we can get into trouble is is we don't have enough information about how these things do interact with what we're treating patients with. But yes, I have. The only thing that she talked about that I really discouraged her from was the hyperthermia techniques that she was investigating in Europe. 
And I was very uncomfortable with that. What are some of the things, Hal, that if we're on a patient's little card, in addition to hyperthermia, that you've seen, so to speak, that are red flags that you kind of put up a caution note for? Well, I don't know that they're really big red flags. I like to joke with my patients that the four natural supplements that I'm most interested in data for with use of other standard therapies are chocolate, vanilla, alcohol, and caffeine. And we don't have any data whether or not those are safe and or effective in patients taking treatments for cancer. And so it's hard to know whether the herbal stuff and the shiitake mushrooms and the vitamins and all those are different. I encourage patients, as Rich has said, not to spend too much money on it. I also, there tends to be a mentality, and this patient articulated it, which was, you know, if I eat something bad for me, am I really hurting myself? If I have a donut with sprinkles on it, am I not taking care of myself in a way that's going to mean bad things for my cancer? Or if I have a drink at the end of the day, is that going to be a problem? And I think we can help patients by at least demystifying some of that stuff and saying, you know what, so far as we know, common sense goes a long way. That is perfectly safe and appropriate and things that people can comfortably enjoy without any fear that they're in some way hurting themselves. And, you know, I've heard of a few patients pursuing some of the more fringe things over the years where you are injecting ground up herbal remedies or this thing with the hyperthermia, it sounds like they poach you like a salmon. And um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. But short of those interventions, almost anything seems reasonably safe. I think you also have to be willing to listen to patients. I don't think you can be dismissive about it because I think they resent that and they want to hear your opinions on it. And I think if you're not willing to listen, then they're going to do it anyway. And then you may end up in a situation where they're taking something that could be potentially problematic. We studied this a long time ago now in a New England Journal of Medicine paper in the late 90s. But one of the interesting things was in early stage breast cancer, the women who pursued alternative therapies tended to have a lot more stress. And I think that one of the things I always ask about when patients bring in lists like this or want to talk about it is, I say, you know, I think these things are fine. You're welcome to pursue them. But tell me, what is it you're trying to address with them? Because if there are other things, whether it's relationship issues or stress or sleep disturbance or other symptoms, I'd like to hear about those because maybe we have a traditional armamentarium that we can bring to bear to help them as well. And she was very direct about what was precipitating. It was her relationship with her teenage daughter who felt that she needed to do this That's right. to continue to fight the cancer. One more question about this patient. I'm just kind of curious, going back to when she was on TDM1, what kind of side effects, toxicity issues did she have for that short period of time? And how did it compare to, say, when she was on chemo? It's very hard to tell that the lady's getting chemotherapy except for the hair loss and bone marrow suppression. We know she had a documented response to TDM because part of the protocol, she had an interim CAT scan that showed a response. But to answer your question, she really has no toxicity except bone marrow suppression. You know, it's an interesting thing, Neil, because all these biologicals and some of these fusion drugs now are sort of begging the question, what is chemotherapy? So there was a JCO editorial by... Jose Baselga, now at Mass General, and he was describing TDM1, and he described it as a biological and not chemotherapy. And it gets to the point of what is chemotherapy? And what chemotherapy is, drugs that make you throw up and make your hair fall out is chemotherapy. And if it doesn't make your hair fall out and make you throw up, it's not chemotherapy, even if it has other side effects. How about this lady? Any side effects or toxicity with TDM1? Not anything of major significance. And if it turned out, Hal, that TDM1 ended up being similar, even identical to, you know, quote, chemo slash trastuzumab. How much of a difference do you think it would be from a quality life point of view? 
Well, potentially a lot. So, you know, there's been one randomized phase two study that Edith Perez has presented where they compared docetaxel trastuzumab versus TDM1 as first-line treatment for advanced breast cancer. And at ESMO last fall, she showed response rates that were statistically comparable, numerically favored TDM1. The company issued a press release recently that PFS was perhaps a smidge better with TDM1. And the side effect profile was clearly better with TDM1. There's no alopecia, there's less myelosuppression. So I think that... The registration strategy for this drug right now is second-line treatment compared against capecitabine lapatinib. I think if it's approved, it'll be a very appealing option in the first-line treatment of metastatic disease as well because of its favorable side effect profile. Do you think it should be available right now? Well, it's not based on you know FDA review. The company had hoped that a single-arm, open-label, phase two study of 100 patients that showed a 30% response rate would be sufficient to define an unmet need. Yeah, I didn't really mean from the point of view of the FDA. I mean, do you think it should be available, just forgetting the regulatory costs, whatever, just patient care point of view, do you think we know enough about it that you would like to have it available or docs like Rich would like to have it available? I think we're getting really close, and I think that it shouldn't be long until we have data from the registrational study and the deal is closed. 